chapter 49. It's the very first book of the Bible, but almost to the end of that first book. Genesis 49, we have the blessing or benedictions that Jacob pronounced over his 12 sons. And we're going to be focusing on verses 8 through 12, what he speaks over his son Judah. And as an introduction, it has been said from this pulpit before that Perhaps the most common experience in counseling is that people have some type of authority issue, often an issue with a father, an earthly father who was either absent or abusive or neglectful, but also with others who have been leaders in different spheres of leadership, whether it's in a church, in a community, or in the world at large. And so... God's intention from the beginning was that we might enjoy peace and fellowship with God and with one another, but sin shattered that scenario. And even in Genesis 3, where the Lord speaks to the woman after she had taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eaten, and the Lord spoke to her and spoke about her husband, saying that he will rule over you. Your desire will be for him, but he will rule over you. That things wouldn't be the way that God intended them to be. There would be conflict and there would be difficulty in authority relationships. And so ever since then, we have been longing for a righteous ruler, one who would be all that God intends for us to experience in relationship with God and with one another. And so with that in mind, we will read from these verses in Genesis 49, 8 through 12, and hear what Jacob says over his son Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. May God bless the reading of his word. So we have this longing for a righteous ruler, one who will be all that God intended for us to experience in relationship with God and with one another. But we need to ask the question, what is righteousness when we hear that word righteousness we tend to think of maybe one or two things we tend to think of goodness and we typically think of goodness in terms of how we compare to others so am I a good person I tend to evaluate that by am I doing better than I perceive this other person to be doing or we think of someone else who's a good person because they're better than others in our perception 
That's how we tend to think of righteousness as this kind of comparative goodness. Or we tend to think of righteousness as holiness in the sense of purity or uh, being free from sin or wrongdoing. But a better understanding of righteousness is this. Righteousness is faithfulness to the demands of a relationship. Righteousness is faithfulness to all the demands of a relationship. And I'd like to illustrate this in a couple of ways. First, in the life of Judah, who is the subject or a subject, not the main subject. I believe the main subject is the Messiah who would come. But Judah is a subject in this text from Genesis 49, 8 through 12. His father, Jacob, is pronouncing a blessing over his life, a destiny upon his life. And he speaks of Judah. But we know Judah's experience from farther back in Genesis, in chapter 37 when he and his brothers were wanting to get rid of their brother Joseph because of Joseph's dreams of how he would rule over his brothers and so they spoke together and they were going to kill him and leave him in the wilderness and Reuben spoke up and sp said no let's not kill him and so Judah then spoke up and said let's sell him to these traders who will take him down to Egypt and so that was Judah then and then Judah himself had a checkered past. He um, had gone to an, a Dolomite woman and he had had children by her. And he had sons, Ur and Onan and Shelah. And he gave his firstborn Ur to a, a woman named Tamar. And Ur died. The Lord took his life. And by law, Judah should have given his next son, Onan, which he did, to um, to Tamar to raise up children for her but Onan refused to do that and he died and so Judah was left with his son Shelah and he promised her to Tamar but he became of age and he still had not been given to Tamar and so Tamar went out and covered her face and sat by the side of the road she looked like a prostitute and Judah came along beside along this road and he saw her and he went to her and he asked, what shall I give you in order to go to be with you? And she asked for his signet ring and his cord and, and she had some personal belongings that she requested from him. And then she became pregnant by him and Judah didn't know that she was pregnant. He didn't know who she was. And so in some time it's told to Judah that Tamar, your daughter-in-law, is pregnant out of immorality and Judah rises up in self-righteousness and says this woman should be burned alive and as she's being led to be executed she says uh, these things that I have here that were given to me in pledge they belong to the man whose child I'm carrying and Judah says you or she is more righteous than I. She was faithful to the demands of the relationship. Judah was not. A similar illustration from the life of David and King Saul. Saul had been king and he disobeyed the Lord and the Lord raised up a new king, David, and Saul was not eager to see his kingdom slip away from him. 
And so he pursued David, trying to kill him. And he pursued David in the wilderness. And one day David was hiding in a cave and Saul had to relieve himself. And so he went to a private place, namely a cave, and he squatted down to relieve himself. And while he was there, David's men said, there he is. You can kill him now while he won't see you. So sneak up from him, on him from behind and take his life. David couldn't bring his, him to stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed, so instead he cuts a little piece of Saul's robe, and then as Saul leaves the cave, David calls out to him and says, Saul, I believe I have something of yours. In essence, that's what he said, and Saul looks back and sees that David could have taken his life that day, and Saul says to David in 1 Samuel 24, 17, you are more righteous than I you were faithful to the demands of the relationship that you had with me as the king and I was not faithful to the demands of the relationship that the Lord had placed me in in relation to you. So righteousness is faithfulness to the demands of a relationship and God promised to raise up a righteous king, one who would be faithful to fulfill all the demands of every relationship towards God and towards others and that is Jesus the Messiah. In Jeremiah 23 verse 5 it says, Behold the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That has always been God's intent for us, that we would enjoy righteous rule, God's own rule over us. But then the people of Israel wanted to be like all the other nations and they said, give us a king. And when Samuel was told to appoint a king, God had to remind him that they're not rejecting you, they are rejecting me from being king over them. So God's intent was for us to experience his righteous rule, his faithfulness to all the demands of a relationship with us, and yet that has been rejected in every age from the beginning. And so God has done something about that. And in this text from Genesis 49, God foretells this king, this righteous ruler who would be raised up, and it would be in the line of Judah. Now this is surprising, perhaps, because of all of Jacob's sons, we would think Joseph would be the one who would be the royal leader. After all, Joseph had had these dreams where he saw the, the sheaves of his brothers and his parents bowing down to him. And Joseph was elevated in Egypt as a prince, as a leader, second in command to Pharaoh. And yet when Jacob comes to the end of his life, he pronounces this blessing on Judah instead. Now, in Genesis 48.2, we see that Judah was old and he was weak, or Jacob was old and he was weak, and he summoned all of his strength and he sat up in bed and blessed his sons. Now, recently I said that because I've recently had hip surgery and the hip was very expensive, that I was going to milk it for all the sermon illustrations that I could get out of it. And you might wonder where are you going to get that in this text? 
Well, of course, Jacob wrestled with God and God put his hip out of joint. And he walked with a limp the rest of his life. And so you can imagine Jacob lying on his deathbed and he's lying there and to summon all of his strength and to try and sit up with a hip that's out of joint, that would have been excruciating. When I was recovering or when I was not yet had surgery after I broke my hip, it was fine just lying on my back. But trying to move it all just sent pain through me that took my breath away. And Jacob in Genesis 48 2 summoned his strength and he sat up in bed and then he blessed his children. There is a lasting worth attached to last words. When someone is on their deathbed, when they're speaking their last words, you want to lean in and listen to them. You've likely heard me talk about my dad's last words when he was in an assisted living facility in Omaha, Nebraska. And my brothers and I were gathered around him and one night, the night before he died, we had spent the day with him and we were getting ready to leave to get some supper. And my dad, who had not been comfortable all that day, had hadn't been able to sit up or anything, he had just been miserable in bed and then he sat up and he leaned forward and he said to my older brother Tom, he said, I'll see you in heaven. And my brother Tom said, yes, you will, Dad. Yes, you will. Those last words of any person that we've loved are very significant. There is lasting worth in those last words. And so when we hear these last words, we want to lean in and listen to them. And in this case, Judah pronounces a blessing. Now, when we think about a blessing or a benediction we typically think of it as a prayer we bow our heads close our eyes but a blessing or a benediction is to pronounce a destiny over someone it's the father taking his hand and placing it on the head of his son or daughter and or perhaps on their shoulder and pronouncing a destiny this is what the Lord desires for you and what I desire for you may this come to be in your life and so when we bless you at the end of worship, when we give the Lord's blessing, you don't need to bow your heads or close your eyes. You can watch because we want to look into your eyes and look into your faces and say, this is what God wants for you. Receive this destiny that the Lord has for you. So a blessing or a benediction is to declare over another God's intended destiny. And this is what Jacob, as he's leaning forward there with his dislocated hip, he speaks to his son Judah and he says, your brothers shall praise you. That's what Judah's name means, praise. When his mother gave birth to him, she said, I will praise the Lord. And so she named him Judah, Judah. And yet Judah had this checkered past. He was not a righteous one. He, like all the rest of us, have been guilty of unrighteousness. And so one day, God would send the only one who is truly and perfectly righteous, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Messiah. And we can be righteous in him as we trust in him alone for salvation. His righteousness is credited to us. It's placed in our account. It covers our sin so that when God sees us, he no longer sees our unrighteousness, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. So God worked to redeem Judah and his family line. So we talked about Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, and Judah 
got her pregnant. She bore twins, and there's an interesting story about the birth of those twins because the first one reached his hand out, and then the hand came, went back in, and then the other one, Perez, was born, and we see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, in the genealogy of Jesus, we see that Tamar and her son Perez are in the royal line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So God took what was man's miserable mistake and turned it into a masterpiece. He uses sin sinlessly. He takes sin in the world and works good out of it. And so God used this sin of Judah by going into his daughter Tamar and getting her pregnant and then used that to bring about the birth of the Messiah. We see that Judah is referred to as a lion's cub from the prey, that he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? If a lion is sleeping at the zoo, you don't go up and tap on its shoulder and say, hi. Some people have done that foolishly. They've climbed into the enclosure with the lion at the zoo and they've paid dearly for it. Judah is called a lion, and we know that ultimately the lion is Jesus, the lion of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah that is talked about here in verse 9, but ultimately in Revelation 5, 5, that he is the one who would fulfill this blessing spoken over Judah. And that Judah, it says, stooped down. And when I see that, I think of Jesus who stooped down. Philippians 2, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or be held on to, clutched tightly, but he humbled himself and took the form of a servant, becoming obedient even unto death and death on a cross. And so Judah stepped down, but the lion of Judah, Jesus, stooped down He humbled himself, and therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue in heaven and earth and under the earth should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see in this text a scepter. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now we know this concept of scepter because the Queen Esther, when she was invited into the royal court, she was encouraged to go before the king and make a plea on behalf of the people of Israel. And she said to the messenger who Mordecai sent to her that that can't be done. If I go before the king and the king does not extend his royal scepter to me to grant authority or permission to come into his presence, I will be put to death. But she decided that she would risk that in faith. And she went and the king extended favor to her, extended the royal scepter so she could come in and plead her case. The scepter and the staff show who reigns as king. So we've seen this emphasis on righteousness. We see it throughout scripture in Psalm 96. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. 
In Isaiah 54, 13 and 14, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. This is what not only what we desire for our children, that they would have peace, that they would have righteousness in the land, but this is what God desires for us. In Acts 17, 30 and 31, it says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In Revelation 19, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Psalm 9, 7 and 8, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for, righteousness, or for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. And then Psalm 72, a prayer for the king. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. So we see throughout scripture, this is God's desire that his people would experience righteous rule. And that is only fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so then we come to these blessings and that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So there will be a king in the line of Judah who will reign forever and ever. Now, there are different kings, and some kings and rulers simply want to exercise their own authority. Some of the younger ones, and maybe some of the older ones, will know the song from the movie The Lion King, I just can't wait to be king. If you hear a king or a would-be king say that, run. In that movie, it was Simba, the would-be king, who sings his aspirations, and he says, I'm going to be a mighty king, so enemies beware. I'm going to be the main event, like no king was before. I'm brushing up on looking down. I'm working on my roar. Oh, I just can't wait to be king. No one's saying, do this. No one's saying, be there. No one's saying, stop that. No one's saying, see here. Free to run around all day. Free to do it all my way. Kings don't need advice from little hornbills for a start. Oh, I just can't wait to be king. Everybody look left. Everybody look right. Everywhere you look, I'm standing in the spotlight. Let every creature go for broke and sing. Let's hear it in the herd and on the wing. It's going to be King Simba's finest fling. Oh, I just can't wait to be king. Too often, that is the theme song of earthly rulers. I just can't wait to be king. I'm going to do it my way. And God wants us to experience kings, rulers, righteous rulers, who serve rather than being served. The Son of Man came not to be served, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this king, this scepter, is something different from the world sees. And so there's this tendency in our hearts because we want good leadership. We want righteous rule. We want peace. And so we seek out rulers 
who might offer something like that. And we tend to pin our hopes on the um, outcomes of the next election or the past election or the one before that. And we've had rulers who have been immoral in their personal life and people have excused it by saying it doesn't matter if they do their professional job. But we know it matters. God intends for us to experience righteous rule, someone who is faithful in the demands of all relationships towards God and towards the people, a king who is benevolent toward his people, a king who is faithful in his earthly relationships. That's what God wants for us. And so we dare not look for something less than that. We dare not pin our hopes on the outcome of the next election. Because there is a king who is king of kings and lord of lords and he was not elected, he was appointed by his father. And this king is the one from whom or to whom all nations will obey willingly. We see this in verse 10 that until tribute comes to him, until and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. God intends to gather all the nations, all the peoples of the world around the throne of King Jesus, and he will reign in righteousness. Now someone, a skeptic, may object and say, I see what you're doing here. You're having this family meeting to talk about the budget and pastoral compensation, and you snuck in this part about tribute coming to him, like taxes. That's not the point of this passage. Jesus isn't waiting for people to bring him money. He is the king of all. He, all the gold and all the silver belongs to him. All the cattle on a thousand hills are his. He doesn't need money from you or from me. But we bring tribute to him when we bring praise, the fruit of lips that give praise to our God. And so this king is the one to whom all nations will joyfully submit as king. And this king prefigured in the life of Judah and says in verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now certainly this is an allusion to the prosperity that would be in the life of Judah and in his the life of his descendants. But ultimately, I think we see in here a prefiguring of the blood of Jesus that would be shed, that he had his garments stained with blood. This king humbled himself and paid for his subject's sin. Then in verse 12, it says that his eyes were darker than wine. That's sorrow, I think, that's depicted there. Dark eyes or sorrowful eyes. And in Lamentations 1.12, we read that there is no sorrow like his sorrow. It's echoed in Handel's Messiah. See if there be anyone who has sorrow like his sorrow. Jesus had this sorrow when he was on the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no sorrow like the sorrow that Jesus experienced for us on the cross. And then it was spoken over Judah that his teeth are whiter than milk. Now, I don't think that's talking about a physical smile. 
that he used some kind of special tooth whitener that he put in his mouth for 15 seconds or 15 minutes every day so that he could have white, bright teeth. I think that's an allusion to purity of speech and words. And Jesus, again, is the one who came, as John described in John 1:14, full of grace and truth. Everything that Jesus has ever said and done has been characterized by grace and truth, a perfect balance of those two. That's a mouth that is pure. We've already said that this king doesn't depend upon the vote of the people, and yet all people must one day give an account before him. So there will come a day when you and I will stand before King Jesus and we will give an account of our lives. And the only plea that we can make in that day is that I am trusting in your righteousness to be credited to my account. I know that I'm guilty of sin. I know that my sin separates me from a holy God, but I am trusting in your mercy and in your righteousness. Receive me on that basis and that basis alone. So Jacob spoke this blessing, this benediction over his son Judah and over his descendants and ultimately his descendant, Jesus the Messiah. And then what are we to do about it? Responding to Revelation. First of all, you can trust this king. He fulfills every promise of God, every promise that's spoken here in Genesis 49 and every promise elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus fulfills them all. He is the yes to every one of God's promises. You can trust this king. You don't have to be anxious or worried this day or this tomorrow or this week or next month. You can trust this king. He fulfills every promise of God. This king is also worthy of your worship and mine. He is unlike any other king. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so because of that, because of the uniqueness of this king, he is worthy of worship. Worth, worship is worth-ship. Jesus is worthy because he is unique as the righteous ruler, the one who will rule and execute righteousness and justice in perfection. And this king will meet all your deepest needs. Now during these coming days and weeks, you're going to be preached at, as we heard last week, by countless messages that you need this and you need that and your spouse and your children and your parents and your grandparents need this in order to fulfill their life and you need to go to the mall and buy it for them or get online on Cyber Monday and buy it for them so that they can have their needs fulfilled. It won't happen. None of those things will meet your deepest needs or mine, but this King Jesus who is the righteous ruler that God intends for us, he will meet all of your deepest needs. He loves to give good gifts to his children, to his subjects. He is benevolent with his mercy. So don't settle for a substitute or a counterfeit. Don't pin your hopes on the outcome of the next election of a particular party, political party's candidate. Don't pin your hopes on who you'll marry or some future circumstance, pin your hopes and bank your hope on this King Jesus. And then submit 
to this king in trust and obedience. As the hymn says, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. He is the righteous ruler that God foretold and that God has intended for us and we can trust in him and joyfully submit to this king in trust and obedience. So I invite you to pray with me now. Oh God, you know the longings of our heart to experience righteous rule, to experience peace in relationships. You've told us to pray for those in authority so that we might live quiet and peaceable lives. So Lord, we know that's your will and your desire for us. And we thank you that you have raised up a righteous ruler for us, a king who will rule in righteousness and that he has come and that he's coming again in glory. And so Lord, help us to trust in him alone, to bank our hope on him, to worship him with all that we are, to submit joyfully to his kingship and rulership over our lives. So Lord, we pray that you would reveal Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords that we gladly receive him and welcome him so that when he appears again in glory, we will have great joy and not shrink back at his coming. Thank you for your fulfilling all of your promises to us in him. We bless you and praise you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We invite you to stand now if you're able and join in singing as we sing together, Hail, Hail, the Lamb of God.
to receive the Lord's blessing and benediction from 1 Timothy 6, verses 13 through 16. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.